Please take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. We're going to be looking at the last four verses of 1 Corinthians 15 today, particularly zeroing in on verse 58. I've had the privilege of being mentored by many men over the course of my adult life the vast majority of whom I have never met, except through their writings. One of those persons who has made a lasting impression upon my soul is a man whose name was David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He still has that name, and for many years now, now almost 40 years, he's been with the Lord in heaven. Dr. Jones was a medical doctor, and no ordinary medical doctor. He was born in Wales. He was educated in London. He had risen to the rank of probably the most promising of all young physicians. He was being trained to succeed the royal physician of Great Britain, which means he would be set apart exclusively for the royal family to be their personal doctor. The man who was training him was the royal physician at that time, Lord Horder was his name. He would have come to be known as, undoubtedly, Lord Lloyd-Jones. He came to know Jesus, however. He was raised in a home. There was a religious home in his nation of Wales. But he didn't ever really know Christ. The gospel that was preached there was no gospel at all. It was not good news because it had to do with good works that people would get to heaven based upon how hard they tried, how religious they were. At the age of 27, in what we would call the time of his residency training under this great master of medicine, Lord Horder, he came to know Christ. Within the year, he made the declaration that he was leaving the medical profession to become a preacher of the gospel. People were aghast. How could he leave such a promising future to go to a sleepy fishing village on the shore of Wales? But he went because the Lord had taken his heart as he had yielded his heart to the Lord. Fast forward 50 some odd years. Dr. Lloyd-Jones was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 68. His cancer was treated. He went into remission. But at the end of his life, the cancer resurfaced. And for the last year, he suffered miserably with this disease. Prior to his having the resurgence of this cancer in his body, he had rather reluctantly granted the wish of a man whom he had discipled face-to-face, who had been on his staff. He was an assistant pastor in the great Westminster Chapel under Dr. Jones. And this man had gotten permission to write a biography of his life. It's a great biography, two volumes, beautifully written. So encouraging to me as I read about the life of this man whose writings had already impacted me and still do impact me. And in the course of their conversation, the biographer, Ian Murray, made a passing reference to a mutual acquaintance of theirs, a man who was a man of prominence in London society and, quite frankly, in all of Great Britain, a man who had been a nominal Christian for all of his adult life. 
he too had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And upon receiving that diagnosis, that man had a remarkable turnaround in his spiritual life. He became more than a Christian in name. He became a practicing follower of Jesus Christ. In that last year of that man's life, it was evident that he really didn't know the Lord. And as this man, Ian Murray, spoke to his mentor, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, about this man, he rather snidely, by his own admission, said, it's only too bad that he didn't live all of those years that he professed Christ as his Savior the same way. There was a moment of silence. And then Dr. Lloyd-Jones looked into the eyes of his friend and his disciple, his biographer, Ian Murray, and said this to him. Ian, never underestimate death. Spoken like a man who understood what Jesus would say and what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15:26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death is the most formidable enemy we will ever face in this life. But the good news is we're going to see for us who are in Christ, if we know Jesus, that death is gained for us just as surely as it was for the Apostle Paul and it was for David Martin Lloyd-Jones because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. One thing that we have in common with every other human being is that we are going to die. Now, this is a great way to begin a sermon, isn't it? I'm not trying to depress you, but we need to face the facts of our mortality. We need to think about it, and we need to respond properly. And this teaching today is going to help you be better prepared for that day. The Bible says in both the Old and the New Testament that we have a date with death. There's a time to be born. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, there's also a time to die. In the book of 2 Samuel, the Bible says, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter and the 27th verse, the Bible says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. And by the way, this does not need to be said. You know this. I know this, but it's in Scripture, so I'm going to say it. The Scripture says also in the book of Ecclesiastes, no man knows his time. I don't know my time. You don't know your time. But we know we do have a date with death. Woody Allen, that great theologian who seems to be obsessed with death, certainly his works reflected his screenplays, his performance in some of those screen plays, he seems always to make his way to the subject of death. In an interview which he gave several years ago, when asked about his apparent obsession with death, he said, it's not that I'm afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and dying is no fun. We know that. It's no fun. And if we could bypass the actual 
process of dying, we all would choose to opt out. We'd like to be like Enoch or Elijah, the only two men who never died and were translated from this life into the next. But it's real, isn't it? It's real. This is the victory that overcomes the world, the Bible says, even our faith. It is by faith that Jacob, according to the writer of Hebrews, when he was dying by faith, Jacob worshipped. Wouldn't you like to be worshipping on your deathbed? The Bible says that Jacob, while leaning on his staff, his shepherd's staff, though telling how long he had leaned on that staff, at least as long as the time when he was crippled in a wrestling match with the angel of the Lord on the bank of the river Jabbok, he leaned on it and he worshipped. His whole family was gathered around him and he worshipped the Lord. That's the way to go out, isn't it? But thank God... All of us have a little more time. Some of you have a whole lot of time. No man knows his time, but we're here. We're in relatively good health, most of us at least, so we've got more time. So here's the question. How do we face death and win from this point forward? Are we to cower in a corner somewhere, worried all the time about dying? Are we to be so absorbed with death that we cannot really live? That's no way for anyone to live. And it's certainly unnecessary and it's uncharacteristic of a person who knows Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. And when our lives end physically, if we're in Jesus Christ, boom. The last thought we'll have will be followed by the appearance of Jesus Christ. And He will come and receive you to Himself that where you are, there He may be. Also, where he is, rather, there you may be also. So, this passage of Scripture, which we're about to read, is going to tell us how to live victoriously from this moment forward in this life and to have a seamless transition from this world to our eternal destiny in heaven. Look at verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory. Where, O death, is your sting? And as Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's quoting the prophet Hosea. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What did Paul have in mind? He probably, if not undoubtedly, had a picture in his mind, being from that region of the world where there are many scorpions, many of those species are poisonous. He had in his mind's eye the picture of a scorpion sticking its stinger, issuing its venom into its victim's body, resulting in death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And then we know what Paul says, that the wages of sin is death. In the book of Hebrews, from which we read earlier in the second chapter, the Bible says that Jesus became one of us in order to render powerless the one who held the power of death, that is, the devil. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that the Son of God, speaking of Jesus, appeared for the purpose 
of destroying the works of the devil, who likes to strike fear in people's hearts at the very thought of death. Well, he does his work in our minds sometimes, too. He gets access in some way to our thinking, and he tends to muddy the waters and bring fear in our lives. But Jesus has taken that fear away from us by virtue of his becoming one of us. And in becoming one of us, he sought and found the opportunity to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus, as it were, was struck with the sting of death. Sin struck him when he became sin on our behalf. And as we read also in Hebrews 2, how the scripture says that he is the propitiation, which is a big word, which is used to describe the fact that he, that is Jesus Christ, satisfied the wrath of God by becoming sin and taking our punishment for us. And he's alive today. And we are being saved Certainly we were saved by His death, but we are being saved by His life. He lives in us. And therefore we have the power to really live from that moment forward, from the moment when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now back to 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can we face death and win? Well, it's because Christ gives us the victory. And He has given it to us in His passion, His cross work and resurrection work. He's done that for us. The victory is in the Lord. So we can face death and win. Now there's some instructions for us in verse 58 that put some practical application of the victory that's already won for us. We could not win it ourselves. Go to the next book in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'd like to read the first part of verse 21 from the New International Version. 2 Corinthians 1.21 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. So where does the victory rest? In the Lord, correct? And it is He, that is God, who gives us the power to stand firm. That's important. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, the word dear is the word beloved. Who is the one who loves us? To whom are we beloved? Well, it's none other than God Himself. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple of love, the apostle who writes so extensively and clearly about what that love looks like, says this, See how great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are the children of God. The greatest title that anyone can hold in the universe is that of child of God. And the Lord has bestowed that on us. The word translate, hath bestowed, is a word which means He gave it to us and He will never snatch it away from us. The Lord will never pull the rug out from under our place in His family. 
It's a perfect tense verb which gives that sense to this understanding. He has given us this otherworldly kind of love. It's impossible to have such love except it come from God and He give it. Now, the two things that we need to bear in mind as we finish this life, we want to finish in a way that will honor God, but also that will leave a lasting impact on this world, but also in eternity. He says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, did you come here this morning with need, the need of some encouragement for your life? Well, I did. I come every morning to the Word of God with the need of encouragement. And it's not because I'm unique. It's because I live in this world and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I know what Jesus says is true. If the world hated me, you know, they're going to hate you too. In this world, you will have troubles. Thank you, Jesus, for that, for telling us we're going to have trouble in this world. It's part of the package of following the Lord, isn't it? So, we understand that we have trouble in this world. But the Bible says about itself that it was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. There is great encouragement here for you and me. We've already received some of it. I hope you have. I have. It's the third time I've taught this, and every time I think about it, it encourages my soul and my spirit. But here are two simple things, not hard to understand. I'm going to say them both, and we'll come back. First of all, we're to stand firm. We'll talk about how we're to do that in just a moment. Why and how. Secondly, we're to stick with the work of the Lord until we take our last breath. That's very clear also. Let's begin with the first command. Stand firm. It's a present tense command. It's a present tense plural command. I know you're interested in that. And what that means is, y'all keep on standing firm. That's good news. Well, why do we have to assume a stance of standing firm? I'll mention something that I heard and have heard many times before from teachers of the Bible like me. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're either currently in a storm, or you've just come out of a storm, or you're going to go into a storm at some point. So we need this command to keep on standing firm. How is that accomplished? Well, two main ideas that I'm going to mention here, and there are probably many more that you can think of. But if we deal with these two and understand them, this idea of standing firm and how that plays out in our lives will be quite well in our victory in the Lord in this life. Here's the first one. We need to listen to what the Lord has to say. In the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus closes it out with these words, referring to what he's taught in Matthew 5, 6, and the first part of chapter 7 in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. What does 
the building of a house represent, do you suppose, in Jesus' figure of speech here? I would say it represents building a life. So, would you permit me to insert that in this statement? Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them or puts them into practice may be compared to a wise man who built his life upon, interestingly, the rock. You're familiar, perhaps, with the way in which the Bible refers to God in the Old Testament. Often, he is referred to as the rock. And even Jesus in 1 Corinthians 10 is described as the rock from which water flowed to slake the thirst of Israel during their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice may be compared to a man who has built his life on the rock. There is no other foundation 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, No other foundation upon which one may build his or her life except the foundation of Jesus Christ if your life is going to matter for time and eternity. That's the foundation. But it's not only on the person of the Lord, it's also on the Word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit has given us the Word. Jesus' words are God's words. And we listen to the words in the Sermon on the Mount. You would do well, and I would as well, to saturate our minds and our hearts in the Sermon on the Mount. It was written for those who were disciples of Jesus. So, this man is a man that we would do well to imitate. This man who built his house on the rock. We built our lives on the rock of the person of Christ, who is the Word come flesh, and also in the Word of Christ. We're to dwell richly in the Word of Christ, is what the Bible says. And the result is, we'll have what we need to face the storm that we may be in, or the storms which are coming someday, so we'll not be shattered by them. He goes on to say that... That man had a storm enter his life. He says, the rains descended, the floods came, the wind blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall because that house, that life was built upon the rock. He talked about another man. And there was another man who built his house on the sand. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice will be like that man. The same storm came into that man's life. Look, Christ allows the sun to shine on our lives who know Jesus. Thank you, Lord. But on the lives of everyone is what's called common grace. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. We have this in common with people outside of Christ. We all have a destiny with death. We have a date with death. We're coming. But the man who does not listen, or the woman who does not listen to the word of Jesus and put it into practice, will be like that man who built his house on the sand. The same storm comes, and it falls, the house that he built. His life falls. Why? Because it was built on the sand, not on the rock of the Lord. It's built on the world's thinking. And the fall, Jesus says, was great. The good news for us who know Jesus, and if you don't know Christ, please consider 
what this text is teaching us. It's not your destiny to die without Christ. If Christ is speaking to you today, He's giving you an opportunity today to settle that matter so you can begin to build a life out of the right materials that will last forever. So, we're to listen to the Word of Jesus, are we not? That's the first answer to how to stand firm in the face of life's storms. But there's another how to do it. It's found in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul is finishing that great epistle to the church at Ephesus, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. We're to be strong in the Lord, aren't we? And the scripture tells us that we're to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes, all of them. We're to put on the full armor of God so we can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Isn't it encouraging to think of that? And then the Bible goes on to say twice more in Ephesians 6, stand firm, stand firm. The devil is opposed to us. Take a look for a moment at 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Whom do you suppose those many were? Well, they were human beings, but remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. They were motivated by demons. And they were opposed to the work of the Lord. What we can and do expect as we follow Christ, there will be opposition. Whenever there's a wide door for effective service open to us, ministry, work, we can expect that. And we need to be men and women who are prepared for that. By not trying to fight the devil in our own strength, it's instructive. In the book of Jude, there's this little statement that Moses, not Moses, excuse me, the archangel Mike, Michael fought with Satan over the body of Moses, the possession of that. And this is what Michael, the archangel, said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. We have no inherent power to fight off the devil, but we can be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, and we can find what we need to go forward in this life as we serve the Lord in this life. Now, the kind of struggles we have are nothing compared to the struggles that people are having worldwide in the body of Christ. I read a statistic which was produced by the Center for New, the Study of New Religion in Turin, Italy. It's a Roman Catholic agency. And when surveying the reports of death, the information about the death of people who died as martyrs for Christ, for their faith in the Lord, in the year 2016, it's estimated 90,000 people died. That's a lot of folks. If you factor that out over a century, that would be 9 million people. And this century is going to be a, a bloody century for believers, I think. It's already started that way. In addition to that, there are 600 million Christians worldwide 
who today are being deprived of their freedom to worship the Lord. But the good news for them, as is for us, when we suffer persecution and it's coming, we're experiencing it already in this world, in this our world. It's going to get hotter for us. The temperature is coming up for us. But we know 600 million people have had that happen to them. This is what Peter, Paul's fellow apostle, had to say to a bunch of people who were undergoing a fire, a difficult time in their lives. A fiery trial is what it's described as by Peter. He says to us, it would be for us today, says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. You know what the word resist really means? It means stand up against. That's what it really means. It comes from the word for stand up. Resist him. And the next line says standing firm in the faith. We have to stand firm in our belief in the Lord, in the faith, standing firm in the faith, not being ashamed of the gospel in this adulterous and sinful generation. Rather, being on the offensive, not being offensive, but being on the offensive with the gospel. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. What are gates for, by the way? Well, they're to keep people out, right? And... When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, He's saying, hey, look, against the evil one, we're coming against Him. And He's going to keep us out of His domain. And He has no control because God is sovereign over Him. And He uses us to minister to other people. It's exciting. We just have to stand firm in the Lord. We're to stand firm, but it goes on to say, immovable. Unable to be moved. Sounds like it's saying the same thing. Perhaps it is. But it's probably got another insight for us. And if we were to go to Psalm 55, 22, this is what we would read. The Scripture says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will not permit the righteous to be moved. So, when we take a stand, we stand firm. We're not ugly in our attitude. We're loving. We take a stand. And it's against the devil. What does the Word of God say? God will sustain us. He will not let us be moved. We're putting our trust in the Lord, are we not? And we will face off with the enemy. And we will win because of the Lord in us and His plan for us to use us. So, we stand firm in life's storms. Two ways. What are those ways? We stand firm by listening to what Jesus says. We stand firm by taking a stand against the devil. We do this life the way it was intended to be done as followers of Christ. We don't trust in ourselves. We trust in the Lord and therefore we are immovable. In the face of trouble. Here's the second principle in this passage. We stick with the Lord's work until the end. The scripture goes on to say, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Notice how Paul 
is not satisfied to just say, give yourselves, but he says always and fully regarding the way in which we are to approach the work of the Lord. Now, I'm going to deal with something that's probably as important as anything I've said today or will say, and that is the question of what makes up the work of the Lord. Is the work of the Lord only for a person like me who teaches the Bible? Is the work of the Lord only for missionaries who go out with the gospel all over the world? Is the work of the Lord just for people who are ordained as elders and deacons in the church of Jesus Christ? Just for whom is the work of the Lord? Well, Paul is writing to Corinthians, most of whom were very immature. But he still goes on and he tells them always... Be a person who gives yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10. This talks about Timothy. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. Well, you say, Mike, that doesn't prove anything, because Timothy was in the work with Paul, He was the equivalent of a modern-day pastor, teacher, or church planter, or something like that, a bishop, whatever. And all those things would be true. However, if we go to Philippians chapter 2, this is what we read in verses 20 and 21. Speaking of Timothy, Paul has said, I'm going to send him to you because I need some encouragement to hear that you're still walking with the Lord. And I know Timothy will come back. He'll give me an accurate report of what he's observed. But then this is what the Scripture says about Timothy. Paul says this, I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone else looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What are the interests of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul was the chief. Jesus Christ is interested in you and in me. He is interested in people. And Paul imitated Christ. He discipled Timothy. Timothy imitated Paul. And in so doing, he imitated Jesus. We who know Christ, we are called upon to imitate Him. And there's no time in your or my life that we're more like Christ when we put others' concerns above our own. Isn't that what Jesus did in becoming a human being and dying for us? Greater love has no one than this, that He laid down His life for His friends. Jesus said about Himself. So, The Lord's work is the work with people. Now, I would assume that virtually everyone in this room, if you have a job, or even if you don't, if you're a student or you're somebody who's in some way retired, you still have people around you in your house, in your community. And the Lord's work is your work if you know Jesus. And what a joy it is to be in His work. Because as we do His work, He is honored and glorified. And He wants to use every one of you, if you know Jesus, every one of you is important. Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, says, Christ gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for the work of the ministry. 
So what is my responsibility to the Lord and to you? What is my responsibility? To equip you for the work of the ministry. Teaching the Bible like I do. Meeting with people in small groups. Meeting with people one to one. I am given the privilege of doing the Lord's work by ministering to you. And you, in turn, listen to what the Word of God says, to prepare God's people for works of service so that, or ministry, so that the body of Christ will be built up. This church needs building up. And I'm not just talking about more people. I'm talking the people that God has given to us. This church needs to be built up. And you and I, if we know Jesus Christ, are to be tools in His hands. And we are going to be used by the Lord till we draw our last breath to help people know the Lord. It's awesome to think about that. When I think about you, I think about how the Lord is using many of you. I could cite example after example representing this room, but how He wants to use us even more as a body. Can you imagine what would happen? We've had in the last three worship services, probably eight to nine hundred people. I don't keep count. But if all of us, properly equipped, shared the love of God with people, it would transform not just El Paso. It would transform the world. Remembering that the Lord started with just 120 people in the upper room. We've got a whole much more people than that, don't we? It's exciting. When Paul was writing to one of his churches in 1 Thessalonians, he raises this question, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, Thessalonican followers of Jesus Christ? Is it not even you, Coronadon followers of Jesus Christ? What is our hope, joy, crown of exaltation? Is it not even us? In the presence of the Lord Jesus when He comes. Any work with people is the Lord's work. Do you work with people? Anybody here who doesn't work with people at all, you never come into contact with people. Would you raise your hand? We all do, don't we? And consequently, we need to be alert to the possibility of being used by the Lord. All we have to say, Lord, you know I'm a zero. He says, I know that. That's the only thing I've got to work with are zeros. It's what 1 Corinthians 3 says. Paul says, I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. Peter's nothing. We're just vessels that the Lord uses. And He wants to use you. This work of the Lord is also faith work. It's not people work. It's faith work. It's the faith to see the potential in people. Jesus has eyes to see what we can't see. When he met Peter for the first time, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Peter. Jesus looks with bifocals. He sees us as we are, but he has this capacity to see what we will become. He chooses us to become someone who will glorify him. So you can cry and whine about what you don't have. Forget about it. Realize you have Christ in your life. And He will use you. It's a matter of faith. Our verse for today, what is it? I can do everything through Him who does what? Strengthens me. Who might that be? Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. 
And so he can accomplish his work through you and me. And he wants to do that. A group of people came to Jesus and they were asking him this question. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus responds by saying this in John chapter 6, verse 29. He says, believe in the one whom he has sent. Faith, trust in Christ. And watch Christ work through us. Later in the book of John, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus says. But with you, there's nothing that we cannot do. In chapter 14, he says, the works that I do, greater works than these you will do. As my followers, it's faith work. The Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Are you doing a lot of vain labor trying to get into God's good graces or improve your position in Christ? Forget about it. Instead, trust in the Lord. Walk by faith and not by sight. Unless the Lord builds the house, he who works labors in vain. That's what Psalm 127.1 says. So we've got to cooperate with the Lord. Over in 1 Corinthians 3, the Bible says about Paul and those associated with him, he says, we are God's fellow workers. You and I. If we yoke up with Jesus, we are his fellow workers. And he will indeed use us. We will always be abounding fully in the work of the Lord. Man, this is powerful. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't get tired doing the work of the Lord. I've been tired a lot doing the work of the Lord. But it's a good tired. You know the difference between a crummy tired and a good tired? Yeah, a crummy tired, you just don't want to keep going, do you? You want to throw in the towel. But a good tired is knowing that you have done what the Lord calls you to do, and that's to trust in Him and He's used you. I don't know to whom I should attribute this statement, but I'm going to mention it. You've heard it probably before, not from me, perhaps. It says... We're never to grow weary, tired of the work of the Lord, but it's very normal for us to be tired in the work of the Lord. Why? We're in a struggle. Our struggle, that word is aptly chosen. It's literally the word, our wrestling. It's a wrestling match with the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world. So we get tired, but we don't give up. We stand firm, do we not? Always abounding fully in the work of the Lord, knowing that work in the Lord is not in vain. Do you want your life just to be a complete washout? Wouldn't it be awful to stand before Christ and all you have is a big pile of ashes to represent your life? You don't have to have that as your experience. Why? Because we have the words of Jesus that we can put into practice. And we will be building a house, a life, that will last. Because it's built upon Him and His Word, not upon ourselves. As I finish, I want to just quote one more thing. Maybe I've quoted it, I've said it so many times this weekend. You've forgotten it if I quoted it, so I'm going to say it anyway. This is what it says. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the Bible says, 
we know that whatever the Lord does lasts forever. Oh, that's so good, isn't it? And the Lord wants to do something through you. And through you. Through you. All over this room, He wants to do something through all of us. And it all comes down to our being men and women who believe what the Lord says. That we can do all things through Him who strengthens us. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. So we must trust in Him completely. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time you've given us today. To be taught by your Spirit from your Word. Thank you for the encouragement we receive. And help us to be a church, Lord, not just an aggregation of people, but a true congregation of hearts that are hungry for You. Hungry for Your Word. Hungry for Your glory, Lord. And for that person who is present today, Lord, who has built his or her house on sand. And when the storm of death comes as it inevitably will, comes in her direction or his direction. He or she knows, Lord, that he or she is not prepared. I pray, Lord, today that those people will trust Jesus for forgiveness, for eternal life, and for an abundant life. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Stand firm and abound in the work of the Lord.